Welcome to Education Suspended, a podcast focused on exploring, engaging, and dialoguing with those in education who are passionate about changing the status quo and evolving the archaic system we have inherited. Education Suspended is a production of Intricate Roots Educational Consulting Services. Our editor and production manager is Katie Kuneen. Our producer is Jamie Higa, and our music is provided by Poets Row. Hey everyone, welcome to Education Suspended. Jessica Pfeiffer here, glad to have you back. In today's episode, we have a really good dialogue with Alicia Garcia. I first met Alicia, it had been about six years ago. She was at one of the trainings that I was conducting, and I vividly remember when we come back from lunch, one of the activities that they have to do is teach back some of the content that's really stuck with them, and she did hers in the form of a rap, and to this day, it's one of the best ones I've ever seen. So I was super stoked when she reached out to see if she could come on and be a guest and talk about the amazing work that she does. Our episode today really focuses in on this concept of restorative justice. This is a specialty of Alicia's and her company, Circle Corps, works with schools, districts, and agencies really trying to embed this framework into the work that they do. It has a really strong overlap to everything that we've been talking about, and I'm so grateful that she gave us her time. Her story is awesome. She reminds us and really challenges us to work towards collective healing. How do we do that as a system, especially for our educators and those that are caring for our kids? I love that she talks about that bringing a restorative practice into your classroom actually really helps with effective and efficient classroom management. Those two happen in collaboration. And she just says, point blank, that the solution is in the circle. And I love it. Everyone, I hope you're doing well. Fall is slowly creeping its way towards us, which is awesome. Take care of yourselves, everybody. Sit back and enjoy Education Suspended with Alicia Garcia. Hey, Alicia. Hola. Hi, Jessica. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. I was actually at a sharing space with a school community today that sends their love to you, Fulton. Oh, that's super cool. Yeah, they're doing really good stuff. I was laughing out loud when you sent the email that says, let's just play jazz music and see and see where we end up. I'm like, yes, we speak the same language. Let's do it. Let's What's have that? you let's have you introduce yourself to our listeners. Tell them what you do, how you got there, and then our favorite part, talk about your own educational experience and what's the connection. All right. Well, hello, everyone out there in podcast world. It is an honor and a privilege to be sharing space today here. My name is Alicia Garcia. My pronouns, she, her, hers, ella. And how do I identify in this beautiful world? Um, I'm a mother. I'm a dedicated family partner. I'm a friend. And what I get to do in this world as a profession is very much in alignment with who I am and my core values. And I'm a restorative practitioner. I started this journey off in the world of education, but the seeds were planted so much earlier than that. I come from a lineage of social justice activists. Um, that's a big part of the seeds that were planted that have blossomed into what is today my life's purpose. And prior to getting into education, I uh, I was 
in the film business for a while. I got a BFA, a Bachelor of Fine Arts in film production. And that's how I thought, I thought that was going to be my pathway to enacting change. And it didn't quite land. It just didn't feel quite right. And folks just kept on telling, have you ever considered education? Have you ever considered? I'm like, yeah, but I don't know. It seems kind of hard. And we all know they don't get paid what they should. And yet enough people started to recommend it to me and like mention it. I was like, all right, what's the universe trying to tell me here? So it was kind of on a whim. I was looking on the computer, different like master's programs in education. And and I saw a program at UC Denver and the application deadline was like that next month. So I was like, shoot. Okay, it looks like I'm gonna have to start studying for the GRE real quick, handle that FAFSA situation do some applications. And I was like, let's just see, I'll apply. If I get in, then, you know, we'll take it from there. So I did it. And by the time that um, I got my acceptance letter, it was pretty clear that that was the path that I should follow. I finished a master's in teaching in diverse contexts or culturally responsive education through the Urban Community Teacher Education Program at the University of Colorado Denver. And I completed my student teaching at a school called Laredo Elementary School, and there was a job opening for a dean of students. And I'm like, I just finished my, I don't know if they would hire me. And they hired me as a teacher on special assignment, a dean of students. And the big reasoning was the fact that even as a student teacher, everyone saw the impact that was had through a strong relationship focus. That was just my jam. It was something that I knew through my own upbringing and through my own academic experience, that relationship was everything. And through professional development, I was offered training and restorative practices. I'm like, holy snap. There's a framework for the things that I'm already doing? Like I was already circling up. Because intuitively, that just felt like the right thing to do, that the more we build relationships, the more we provide a platform for student voice, the more we then were uh, stewards to what we heard, the more we became stewards to that student voice and offered choice in response to that voice, the more engagement we had. And what I started to realize was like all this talk of classroom management, I'm like, y'all, it's about classroom engagement. The more students are engaged, the less they have to be managed. And when I learned about something that's called the five R's framework through Dr. Beverly Title, not to be confused with the six R's, But when I became familiar with the five R's of restorative practices, it was and still continues to be the major paradigm shift, internal shift needed for me to have a lens through which to really see all interactions in my life, not just my professional interactions, not just the interactions I had with colleagues and other staff, the interactions I had with youth, but really the interactions I was having within my own personal life, interpersonal and intrapersonal, that internal work as well. So the five R's, relationship, foundation of everything. 
and restorative practices, we recognize that when a wrong occurs, individuals and communities feel violated. The relationship is the foundation. And it's not about so much breaking a rule as it is harming a relationship. Mm. And each one of these relationships in the community is critical. Mm -hmm. And it's not in this hierarchical form. Can I ask a question real quick? Oh, yeah. Because I think I love how you're starting to frame this. One of the questions that I've always had as it pertains to restorative practices is what you're talking about. This relational context, this notion and this belief that there is a relationship there that exists to restore. That for me tends to be sometimes where poo hits the fan is that we go into like, oh, we got to restore this. We got to restore this. And I'm telling them like, there's not even a relationship there from the eye of the kid. Boom. Yeah. You cannot repair a relationship you don't have. Yeah. So, so I, I have two questions. My first one is I'd love to, before we go into the other ones, and when we stick right here on this relational piece, how do you manage this from a generational perspective with marginalized kids? How do you even begin to open up that can of worms when the entire system has disrespected that relationship generationally? That just seems a little counterintuitive. And I know you do a good job, so I'd love to hear how you do that. And then for you as a student, um, what experiences did you go through and were you able to take that that also help you understand this relational piece? Mm. So I like to talk in concrete and tangibles, right? And before I go into addressing the, the generational harm and repair, as it pertains to marginalized youth, um, I want to just quickly say relationship. The second R is respect. The third R is responsibility. The fourth, repair. You don't even get to repair until number four. And then reintegration, going right back to relationship. It's a cycle. So what do we do? And that's why when we look at restorative practices, even though restorative practices is considered preventative, it's in the name. We are still restoring something. Even if we are not directly responsible for the harm that has been done, we do have a responsibility to repair that collectively. So I'll give you an example. There's a youth. Uh, he's a young Black man. He is third generation Aurora, Colorado. Three generations. He is the first that has not experienced foster care. Okay? We're seeing some challenges around peer-to-peer -peer interactions with this young boy. My first thing is this. Before we jump into tier two and tier three interventions, I'm going to call his family, and I'm going to invite them in for coffee, tea, crumpets, whatever your flavor is. I'm going to find that out, and we're going to have a little family coffee. Because number one, I cannot have trust or respect until a foundation of relationship is has. We're going to break bread. Maybe it's inside the school building. Maybe it's outside at a picnic table, depending on what sees fit and what the dynamic is between the institution of school, and that family. Because if this is an environment of institutional harm, it's no wonder that this conversation can't be had within those walls. So I'm going to invite that family member in, and we're going to talk about what is the light that you see in your child. When your child was first born, what was something that you felt 
was a quality or characteristic that they carry, that they continue to carry, that you want to see cultivated and grown? And what have you in your own academic experience and how your own light was able to shine brighter or how it might have been dimmed? And I want to hear about that parent's academic experience, very much like we're doing right here. Understand how many layers of harm have occurred and how deep we need to go in addressing that and making sure that those patterns are disrupted. So after this meeting, we find out all sorts of things about educational trauma that were experienced by the mother and how that greatly impacted the relational trust that she had with schools. And so now we're developing a partnership where I'm developing a relationship with mom, with dad, grandma, and we're all coming together to wrap our arms around this young man. And after having that tea and you know those chocolate croissants with that family, we start to see eye to eye. I share my experience. They share their experiences. We name all the values. We name all the challenges we've experienced. And most importantly, we have our desires and our hopes. And we set up, okay, this is basically our norms. This is my commitment to you and serving your child and your child growth. And like, what can you commit to? And how are we going to work together to make sure that we do not perpetuate the harm that has been done. And so that's one example. How has that, that relational aspect impacted me? I mean, I walked in late, tardy, first day of kindergarten, and was set in the corner while everybody else played the name game. It made me feel little. It made me feel ashamed. It made me feel like isolated. Like I wasn't a part, like I didn't belong. Now that teacher, what they didn't ask me is like, hey, what's going on? What are they? Had they asked that, they would have known that I was a caretaker to my severely handicapped mother who was suffering from Huntington's disease. That right before I left and made sure she had everything ready for the day, that she had an incident of incontinence. And that my brand new first day of school outfit got sullied and I had to change. And I'd go down the street, neighbor to neighbor, to try and find a ride to school. But instead, she sent me in the corner. And nobody got to know my name through the name game that day. They got to know my name through shame. Now, cut to much later, I uh, was adopted by my grandmother. And she went back to work, continued to work at the age of 76. I got a scholarship to a high school in mid-city Los Angeles, a very reputable all-girls high school that I just felt like I didn't belong. I had an A score of 10. The girls there were living in extreme affluence and privilege. We did not relate. And my swim coach at the time, shout out to Tim Hughes, he pulled me aside one day before practice and he's like you know they're trying to expel you and you're on the brink and I'm like cool let them 
don't need this school. I'm going to go to LA High. What's up? Like, I'm going to go to people who know what's up, who like, who I can mix with because these aren't my people. He said, you know what? That would be a damn shame. I said, why? Wisdom is earned. Intelligence can be gained. Why don't you try beating them at their own game? You have all the wisdom in the world. Why don't you just see what it's like to beat them at their own game? And I was like, huh, is that a challenge? Like, I don't know. I like a challenge. I was like, well, I don't know. I just like, I'm not smart like them. And he was like, you're, you're smarter than them, as a matter of fact. And like, when are you going to cut the, you know what, and get to action? That moment changed my life. I graduated from that school with a 3.98 GPA and scholarships to go to college. And I wouldn't be here today, I don't think, if it wasn't for that moment. He cared enough about me and loved me enough to hold me accountable at the highest level possible, which is another thing that is commonly misunderstood about restorative practices is that it's lenient, it's easy, it's soft. And I would argue that there is holding folks at the highest level of accountability possible within the context of care. And I think even to some degree, it's been a while, but even when you and I met last at that training, we focused a lot on the developmental perspective. And I do think that's one really strong positive that can exist about restorative practices is that if the relationship is there, you have no other choice but to come at it from a developmental perspective because you're able to attune and respond in a way that's appropriate because you know this kid, you know that you don't want to punish, you don't want to make them comply. And so you're able to come at it from that teaching perspective. Or you may not even want to praise, right? Yeah. Everyone's like, oh yeah, like positive behavioral reinforcement. Verbal praise, some youth, that can be extremely dysregulating. Yeah. But you have to make sure that your supports are relevant and relational. And you do that through building relationships and developing that respect and that trust. I think it's really interesting right now, as far as this shift that's happening in schools in such a strong focus around SEL, social emotional learning. And if we look on a policy level at all the work that is being done around the support of mental and behavioral health, I think my opinion and my goal right now as I branch out beyond schools and education is looking at it as a public health concern, looking at collective trauma and the need for collective healing. Trauma and stress, nothing new to our species. Nothing new. Psychotherapy, pretty new. And so when we look at, well, how did our ancestors make it so far? And it was through ceremony, through circle, through rhythm, through dance. And what happened, I think a lot is a byproduct of colonization, was the stripping away of these healing modalities that much of it was collected. We hear self-care all the time in the setting of teachers and education, the importance of self-care, the importance of self-care in the public health sphere. And in a way, it's, it's putting the responsibility on us to heal harms we did not create. And additionally, this work cannot be siloed. Like, I believe, yes, there's some introspection that needs to happen when it comes to 
healing, especially from generational trauma. And yet, I think that we've had such a huge departure away from that collective healing. What can the power of healing that can happen in circle and community when we come together and we grieve and we mourn and we celebrate and we dance? So we're all really healing. As all of this is happening, my hope on a grand policy level is how might we really start to integrate the restorative framework within the public health lens. And not just as far as our direct service providing, mm -hmm. but also internally, organizationally. Just like in a school building, if y'all aren't taking the time to walk the walk and check in with each other and have circles at your staff meeting and offer regulation breaks for staff, like, yeah, we're offering regulation breaks for youth, but we're not doing it for the staff. We have to be doing the same things internally as we are with the services we provide. First off, amen. I love the systems lens. You've listened to these episodes. You know, I always love to go there, but that does stand out for me for restorative practices. It's, it seems to be a heavy emphasis on educators to students. And I'm glad that you brought that up because it was on my list to bring up. How do you even step back and say, before we can do that, how do we have that collective healing with system to educators? We are seeing educators just walking away because they are not being cared for and they're done. So like how does- Rolled away on like gurneys and stretchers. And <laughs> like, take me out, coach. Take me out. Take me out. I mean, how do you even begin to conceptualize the restorative practices for, for a district with their staff, for the institution with the educators? Oh, that's a million dollar question, right? As with any bureaucracy, when you're looking at the whole system, it's often pretty difficult to enact that level of change. I have seen great success with working on a more macro level and working within school sites and working on that climate and culture and then leading by example, attraction rather than promotion. Ooh, look at that data. Their TLCC scores went up. Like, what are they doing? So they see all these correlation like data points and they're like, oh, snap, what's going on over there? And then you start looking at the nuance. And really, that's another thing. Systemic and systematic. We got to look at it from both ends. It's one thing to like, all right, we can have a circle. I'll pull out the PowerPoint. You can have a little workbook. And we can go over theory and philosophies and all these ideas all day long. But until the systems change to mirror those ideologies, we're going to just be spinning around in circles. The first thing that I always recommend is start off with the values and agreement circle. And that's on a district-wide level. I worked at San Francisco Unified School District for two years as um, a system support specialist district-wide around the implementation, restorative practices, PBIS, safety care, all these different modalities. What we did there, first operational action item, making it mandatory for our district-wide team to meet once a week for a values and agreement circle. We had a values and agreement circle 
every single week. What do you bring? What do you need? And you see your values change, your needs change, and then really making sure that we're being responsive to each other's needs to really model that. Youth can smell it especially, but like you can't fake this phone. You can't do it. If your talking values are not aligned with your walking values in this work, the process of elimination is quick. Especially again with our marginalized kids, especially with the ones that can be easy to focus on. Oh, we need it. There needs to restore. And those kids are calling bullshit on us. They're like, you don't, you don't care about us. This system doesn't care about us. And I will say our marginalized adults as well. Oh, right? Amen. Like, amen. Because that's something I'm seeing a lot is like more so than ever talking about like these times have been especially hard for educators of color. It's already a tiny pool and also the LGBTQ plus Mm -hmm. community. We're not making it any easier for these educators and they're being further pushed out when we cannot afford to lose that representation. Mm -hmm. On that district wide level, again, it's like, I always say the solutions in the circle. I mean, really like hold the circle once a week. That's going to change our culture. Yeah, it will. 100%. We opened every single one of our staff meetings with a values and agreement circle before we went to work. So what's the difference between like, hey, we're just going to have a meeting and the difference of having a circle? The circle formation. Mm-hmm. Everybody's hopefully sitting in the same kind of chair. The little nuance like that matter. We're leveling the playing field. We are like truly living equity in action because every voice is heard if it wants to be heard. Everybody always has the right to pass, which is extremely powerful especially for youth. When else in your educational experience do you get to opt out and not be penalized for it? But it's a powerful thing. You don't have to be orthodox about anything about circles, but like something as nuanced as like everybody bringing something that really means a lot to you. If you had an evacuation that went down in your house, what would you grab? The thing that you would grab that would seem ordinary to anybody else, but it's extraordinary to you. They bring that in. They talk about the talking piece and that meaning to them. Boom, selective vulnerability. It's an invitation to listen. And then you have the guidelines. Like you speak from the heart. You listen from the heart. Trust you know what to say. Say just enough. What is said here stays. What is learned may leave, a.k.a. the Vegas rule. You go about that. You have the consistency, the predictability. Folks know that they're about to enter a real safe space. It's really hard to heal when you're closed up, right? Mm-hmm. Well, it's hard to heal when you are worried about the power differential that could exist in the circle too. So those are, you know, those guidelines are are trying to probably balance that power. Absolutely. It's leveling that playing field and balancing that power dynamic. It's really not rocket science. It's just like, you just got to do it. It takes time. I have a colleague, dear friend, and she was like, man, I'm too lazy to not be restorative. Like, you know how much work it is? To clean up the mess of not being restorative, like, it's just, that's too much. I'd rather just give them the power. I was at a school last year and like, they had just rotating subs, rotating sub, rotating sub. We're seeing a lot of requests for behavior support within that classroom. I'm like, the issue is not the kids. It's not the issue. I was in there for a week and taught them how to do circles, how to keep circles. Literally changed everything. They were the keepers of the culture. 
as it should be. I want to write that down real quick before I forget, because I love that. They are the keepers of the culture. This is what happens when I'm running solo and I have to remember everything. Really what I heard you say is that, you know, the solutions in the circle. So if you can begin to norm these restorative practices and this, this routine of a circle regularly is that you're innately giving power back to the kids. And I love what you just said about your coworker who was the teacher. She's like, I'm too lazy to not do it because in the end, it actually makes the entire classroom, including the academic parts, run better. 110%. Okay. So then what would you say to those, which for good reason, might be anxious at a script switch that's so powerful of giving the power to the kids? Because they ha we haven't been trained like that. Teachers aren't trained to give the power to the kids. In fact, again, the system works very hard to take it and take it and take it. So how do you alleviate that? It needs yeah. to be modeled. It's a skill, right? Yeah. And so yeah. that Good. skill must be modeled. And so here's a circle planning template or circle planning guide. There's a great book, Kay Pranis wrote, Circle Forward, has really great comprehensive circle lessons by topic. And I would just say like, all right, as you build your restorative muscles and feel more confident in leading circles in your classroom, and you can teach that skill to them, have them follow along. All right, what did we notice in today's circle? Okay, our closing prompt is this to five, how were we with keeping with our norms? Let's go through, listen from the heart. How did we do? Oh, well, that's a lot of fists. Okay, what is our commitment for next time? Okay, cool. So you start norming that. And then you say, the expectation is eventually I would love for youth to lead circles in this classroom. My goal is to prepare you for that. Do I have anybody who's interested? And then we're going to start coaching, working together, and maybe co-facilitating some circles. What's the worst that can happen? Mm -hmm. So this actually does bring up, and I'm being cognizant of our time here, but this does bring up another fear that I, I, I often hear, especially when people throw out the word trauma-informed, which makes me want to slam my head against the wall. The fear is, oh, this is just another flavor. This is going to be another catchphrase. Oh, yeah, I do my circles and my restorative justice. And ask me what we're doing next year, and we're doing kumbaya. They should be nervous, right? But I, I think I appreciate what you're saying about it is... And I love it. You all are coming at it from the perspective of you're challenging the whole system to shift. The whole system has to become restorative. Correct. It's not enough to just have the ideas, yeah. thoughts, beliefs. The systems have to align with that. And I will say this. It is not the next flavor of the month. And one way we know this, I'm going to read a little excerpt. Again, a shout out. So my girl, Marisol Quevedo Rerrucha, who wrote Beyond the Surface of Restorative Practices. Restorative practices are sagrados, they're sacred. These practices are rooted in indigeneity and offer a way of life that recognizes our responsibility for self, others, our community, our Mother Earth, and all Earth's creatures. Restorative practices provide a way to both build and repair relationships with self, others, and the broader community. We adopt these teachings, this way of being, so that we can improve and build a stronger society for future generations. 
people who have a restorative mindset and what we refer to as a heart set, I love that so much, are authentic and reflective. They can build trust, listen with their hearts as well as their minds, embrace difficult and awkward situations, seek growth, provide opportunities for others to grow. Who doesn't want that? And also, it started off by saying it's rooted in indigeneity. This is nothing new. Mm-hmm. This has been around since civilizations began. It's not going anywhere because it hasn't gone anywhere. I had the opportunity to partner with uh, Senator Bennett's office in the cultivation and creation development of the Restorative Practices in Schools Act, which is federal. Like this isn't going anywhere. I have to honor the fact that Steve is not here. I don't know why I just call him Steve. I never get that formal. Wow, that was weird. That Grainer is not here. And I have to harness Grainer for a second. He's the educator like you. He was in the classroom for 33 years. And without a doubt, he would be saying, let's wrap up with two to three concrete, simple things that teachers can begin to do to slowly open up the gates to a restorative lens, to a restorative practice in their academic classroom? What, what are some basic things that they could start doing? Empathetic inquiry, like asking questions. Ask questions. Whenever there is something where you feel dysregulated within your classroom, ask why. Why for you? Maybe why for them? Why is this occurring for them why am i responding this way how might i respond differently so the questions and i want to also honor the fact that educators have a lot on their plates if you make it a goal to have a conversation a just because conversation with every single household of your students it will be like the best investment It's like, you're going to get a huge ROI on that. (laughs) And that way, if you ever have to make a call about a concern, you have that foundation of relationship and trust. As a parent, like, there's nothing worse than getting some negative feedback about your child, especially when it's coming without any sort of relational foundation. Yeah. Um, And then looking within before putting a magnifying glass, holding up the mirror and thinking to yourself, what have been my academic experiences? If I made a mistake, what was the response and was it supportive? Think about a time when you felt like you belonged or you felt like you really were part of a community that you felt valued in school. What was the action that led to that? And commit to doing something that is aligned with that within your classroom practice for a week and see what happens. I love it. I love it. Those are perfect. They're tangible and they're easy, right? It's not going to take a lot of time to do those. And not that I have to pick and choose my favorites, but that last one was a gold mine. I can guarantee you that every single educator out there is already doing something restorative. They may just not realize it yet. A hundred percent. So just do more of what's working to build relationship. Yeah, I love it. Do what you're doing. Do what Um, you're doing. Level up. Let's go. 
Well, I am so grateful that you joined us today. Sorry that the other team members are not here, but they send their love. They're grateful for all the hard work that you're doing. Let's do another quick reminder of you, the name of your company, how people can find you, um, and then we'll start calling it a day. Yeah, um, Alicia Garcia here with Circle Core, just like Peace Core. That's Circle, C-O-R-P-S dot com you can find us there we offer support and building capacities and communities around restorative practices as well as liberatory design we have had similar clients and people love the work that you're doing so thank you thank you for addressing it not just from a student level but systemic you're taking on the whole system which i appreciate and you're really really pushing for that collective healing which is awesome alicia thank you so much oh thank you so much jessica it's been a blast